Welcome to Poetically Speaking. We're your co-hosts, Eliana Horning and Kendall Wack. Thanks so much for joining us. We're so glad you're here. We are so glad you're here. So it has come to our attention, and by come to our attention, I mean in our memories, we remembered this, <laughs> that we erroneously said that this would Hi. be the last episode in our previous episode, but as it turns out, we have too much research that we would like to share with you guys and too many thoughts, so we decided to break this episode into two parts similar to our gun violence series, not similar in the sense of format, but similar in the sense of we are doing two episodes on the same topic back to back. So this is going to be part one of the episode, and then part two of our episode will come next week, and that episode will be the last episode of the season for sure. No doubts about it, that will be the last episode of the season. But So that's some context just to get you started and for anyone who was confused. We don't want you guys to stop here. We want you to come back and listen to our episode next week because it's going to be just as informative and helpful and thoughtful and thought-provoking as all of our episodes hopefully are. <laughs> yeah, fingers crossed that that's the case for all of them. Yeah, like we, we'd, so. we'd like to think so. So yeah, that is what's going on. The poem for today's episode is At the University by Aethka Madeline, which is Aethka's Words on Instagram, at Aethka's Words. I will be putting all of that in the description so that everyone can check her out too. I really like her work. Yeah, on with the poem. At the university, there are embryos picked and pickled to perfection, made to fit boater shoes and racer cars. That old network of the honorable descent upon our unions of shit streets and snickets, cobblestones of collateral from coalitions past. Politics at the dinner table with those champagne socialists who don't know pangs of hunger that tear at the stomach they're too full on. Blood ripped out from my mother's mouth, those coals they make us walk on. Burn these shoes, chortle at discomfort sealed in their signet rings, and jump through trees outside the cathedral. As they mock my name, mimic my o's echoed in drunken chalices, they squeeze my tit for their fetish and drink my dignity from their shoes. It's those trust funds, baby, that give them the nerve to throw up on these streets lined with remnants of our past as they piss up walls. I remember the town that was once here with its gallus of steel, crucible of time that used to be mine before they stopped our riot over XYZ so they could build the university to which I don't belong. Wow, that's uh, that's pretty topical. That's crazy. Shout out you for that, because that's an incredible find for this episode. Right? Just a lot of really fabulous like lines and phrases here lots of really great imagery of course like i loved the champagne socialists line I yes thought that, that made me gasp a yes that was that's like, so good yeah it's one of those things where you're sort of like i mean even even us i wouldn't consider us like champagne socialists maybe like i don't know decent wine socialist sort. <laughs> barefoot bubbly <laughs> socialist <laughs> exactly yeah i love a good fruit scotto oh yeah uh, so, like, we're, you know, we're, like, middle class, but at the same time, sometimes I, I find myself having to stop myself and be like, okay, yes, this is your ideology and you believe this, but you need to take a step back. Because oh, absolutely. You don't, you don't need to be this person. You don't know the pains of hunger, and you're not, you know, 
you're not in this person's position. And I think that was just, it's, it's one of those things too, where it's just a good, um, a good reminder every once in a while to sort of like take a step back and be like, Hmm, yes, I don't know anything about these sorts of struggles and just sort of make sure you're not, um, co-opting that, I guess. I don't know. I think that, I think the poem revolves around that phrase, champagne socialists. I think that's really, really great. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree. And I think this poem has just so many good lines, but beyond that, just like from a craft standpoint, like the alliteration is Mm -hmm. done so well. And I talked about this time and again, and I know I will continue to talk about this because this is my absolute favorite thing, but is (laughs) um, line breaks and stanza breaks and Mm. having them carry over from, having lines carry over from stanza to stanza. Specifically here, under the Champagne Socialist line, mm-hmm. it says, who don't know the pangs of hunger that tear at the stomach, they're too full on blood ripped out from my mother's mouth. Like, Whew. too full on blood ripped out of my mother's mouth. Wow. Yeah. What it's a really, line. Yeah. yeah. No, And then, like, the fact that, I don't know, like, obviously, you can read it as tear at the stomach if they're too full on. Like, you could just stop Yeah, there. absolutely. Like, my you know and like the fact that you can split it in two and it still has just as much meaning is so great like you're so right I love the it's such a thoughtful stanza break there yeah I also what I really like about this this poem too is like the the last stanza the idea that like that give them to nerve to throw up on these streets lined with remnants of our past as they piss up walls just the idea that with these rich white people there is no care or concern for the history of any place there is nothing is sacred to them they own everything and it's their right you know in their their mind to throw up where they want to piss where they want to destroy what they want to to really do anything with no respect to the history of the past the people who live there anything like that and I mean that's something that I experienced personally at the school that I went to which specifically during the times of COVID, but like I went to a school in Chicago and we're very much in a neighborhood and the neighborhood is filled with, it's a very diverse neighborhood, you know, and this was something that I saw a lot with COVID specifically where these rich white kids came back to Loyola after online schooling, even during online schooling, they came back to their apartments. This was like, you know, fall 2020. Mm -hmm. They came back to campus and they started spreading COVID everywhere because they just kept partying. They didn't, they didn't care. It was just party after party after party, not caring that there's a ton of working class people, especially working class brown people. And there was just no care or concern about their lives, about what they have to do. And it's like, you come into a community that you are not a part of, you bring illness into their community. Like, You getting COVID is one thing. Mommy and daddy are just going to pay for your hospital bills. But what happens when the single working class mother gets sick and has COVID and now can't work to provide for her family? So she either has to work through COVID or maybe dies from COVID. You know what I mean? It's like Mm -hmm. there's just no concern for the impact of their community. And similar things like there was one day when Loyola had a game. And this was also in the middle of COVID times, mind you. And they flooded a gigantic street, stopped traffic, 
and partied, like tailgated and like celebrated and all drank. And it's like, of course, like this is this is going a little bit too off on a tangent, but of course the cops didn't do anything except there, there are pictures of the cops high-fiving them while no student had masks on, while there was a mask mandate in place. Meanwhile, when we all protested, the cops were all up our ass. Um, anyway, mm-hmm. anyway, um, I've seen this firsthand. And, you know, like Ellie said, like, we, we are both, you know, middle-class white people. So I, I don't want to, you know, get too, like, I know what this is like in depth. But <laughs> I, I have witnessed white privileged people treat the world as if it is their piss pot. As if it is... Right at their disposal because they've been told for so long that it is so i think this poem in a long-winded way of saying it what i'm trying to say is that i think this poem illustrates the reality of the world very well yeah i think in general just the idea of a college town like is so double-edged like you said about like you know you come into this community that you're not a part of and you likely will not be a part of after like four years and you spend a ton of time there but you know you're not contributing to you know any community events you're not like attempting to integrate yourself into this community and help improve maybe like absolutely recently i've been encouraging kids at my because i also um i also go to school and like a big party town like Oswego Oswego is a huge party school and like that that sort of bleeds out into the city itself so like I've been telling freshmen because I'm working with a lot of freshmen this semester I've been saying like get involved in politics here like register to vote here because this is where you're going to spend a majority of your time and it's it's good and necessary for you to try and make an impact here instead of just you know showing up, being here for a little while, maybe making some messes, maybe puking outside the sub shop, which is a thing that happened. I don't know. I go to the sub shop after church. Hey, bunch of vomit on the ground. Cool. But like, just this idea of middle class white college kids, because that's usually who's going to, maybe not Oswego, since Oswego's a state school, but like, there are still like a huge number of middle class white kids like me, who go there and aren't from the area and don't really care about the area. Like, I saw a lot of that during COVID as well. Like, I knew people who would throw parties, like, during, like, a huge shutdown of COVID and, like, would just sort of complain about feeling like COVID shutting their life down or whatever. And I was like, okay, but you're partying and this is not going to impact, you know, like, wherever you live, like, we have a lot of downstate kids. Like, this is not going to impact New York City. This is going to affect Oswego. This is going to affect your immediate area. And you're partying and and spreading it like little plague rats. I don't know. It hit a nerve, which is why when you said that, it, like, bothered me. Because, like, I do go to that school, but this is also the community that I've been a part of for a while. So, like, I don't know. There's just something something really irritating, something really frustrating about watching a bunch of kids come into a town that's not theirs and sort of like painting the sidewalks with puke I guess not into it yeah absolutely this poem does a very very good job of illustrating it classism Mm -hmm. specifically in universities so also eighth cut is from the UK so Uh 
this, thought maybe. Yeah. I was getting, I was getting a vibe. <laughs> yeah. So Aethkiss from the UK. So it's also good to know. Well, I guess not really good to know, but like, it's important to see how this is not just an issue in the United States. This is a mm. universal problem of classism in higher education and in the university setting. So yeah, in conclusion, we both really love Aethka's writing, and we're super grateful that she let us use her poem on today's episode. So thank you, Aethka. Everyone go check out her work. We will have her socials linked in our description. So if you haven't already guessed from the title of this episode or from Aethka's beautiful poem at the beginning, the topic of this two-part series is going to be classism of higher education slash intellectualism slash all of the negative things that come with higher education. So the first part is going to be a bit of a deep dive into where classism starts in terms of education and the second part is going to be more of how does classism manifest in higher education. So to start that off, I wanted to talk about how early classism starts and specifically like the roots of classism and higher education and how we get from an elementary education to higher education. So obviously classism does not just poof magically appear in higher education. There are roots of it, there are signs of it, there are effects of it in all forms of education across the country, across the world, as we saw in Aethka's poem. This is not just limited to the United States, so I don't want to speak that way. All of the research and all of the things that I'm going to be commenting on are from the United States specifically, but I do want to recognize that there are countries in the world that also experience classism in higher education. But the point is that classism starts early. And one of the areas that this starts is high school, specifically access to counseling services in high school. In 2020, Dr. Christine Mulhern did a study about high school counselors and impacts on their efficacy using Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education's data, as well as post-secondary enrollment records from the National Student Clearinghouse to conduct this study. So as a kind of brief idea, what is it that high school counselors do? In addition to scheduling and other administrative tasks, Mulhern finds that counselors may provide information that many students lack about post-secondary education and labor market options. This could include the costs and benefits of different options, as well as the steps to apply and enroll in college. They can also help obtain SAT fee waivers, write letters of recommendation, and help students complete forms and sign up for services, including college or job applications. Mulhern estimates that high school counselors have the ability to impact five different categories, non-cognitive skills, cognitive skills, college readiness, college selectivity, and educational attainment. So non-cognitive skills are things like days absent, days truant, days suspended, high school dropout. Cognitive skills are things like high school GPA, number of classes failed, 10th grade math test, 10th grade reading test. College readiness is did you take the SAT? What was your SAT score? Did you take an AP test? What was that score? College selectivity is attending a selective college, attending a highly selective college, graduation rate of college attended, mean income of graduates of college attended. And then educational attainment is, did you graduate high school, attend college, attend four-year college, things like that. So like I said, 
this study was about efficacy of counselors. And so the main thing was how do we make them more efficient? And what is the data between the more efficient counselors and the median counselors? So that's the reference points that I'm using for this data. So students assigned to counselors who are only one standard deviation more effective than the median are two percentage points more likely to graduate high school, 1.7 percentage points more likely to attend a four-year college, and 1.4 percentage points more likely to persist in college into a second year. The graduation rates of the colleges students choose to attend are also 1.3 percentage points higher, suggesting that they also may be more likely to earn a degree. These impacts are generally larger for students who are not white, scored below average on the state test in eighth grade, or are from low-income families. For example, a minority student assigned to an effective counselor is 3.2 percentage points more likely to graduate high school and 2.2 percentage points more likely to attend college. Low-achieving students assigned to an effective counselor are 3.4 percentage points more likely to graduate and 2.5 percentage points more likely to attend college. These results indicate that counselors may be an important resource for closing racial and economic gaps in college completion. More broadly, these results indicate that educators of all kind can have important impacts on students' long-term outcomes by providing them information or helping them access opportunities. Students assigned to a same-race counselor, defined here as a white counselor for white students and a non-white counselor for students who are not white, are about two percentage points more likely to graduate high school, attend college, and persist in college compared to their peers who are assigned to a counselor of a different race. These effects are largest for non-white students who are 3.8 percentage points more likely to graduate high school and to attend college if matched to a non-white counselor. There is no detectable benefit for matching students to counselors based on their gender. I also wanted to point out that while there is a higher benefit for non-white students to be placed with non-white counselors, the study also noted that white students benefited from white counselors as well. And while there could be a lot of reasons for that being the case, what Dr. Mulhern noted was that students are most likely to respond to someone who looks like them as in similar right. situations to them. And it's not necessarily racially motivated and like white students prefer white counselors. It's just like students listen more to people who are similar to them, mainly in the area of race. But there is a lot of research about this. Well, not enough because education doesn't get nearly enough research or reform in the ways that it should. All of the research is about how do we reduce counselor caseloads? How do we make sure there's more counselors? And like, yes, that is important, but at the same time, this study suggests that the issue is not really caseloads, the issue is efficacy. And so instead of focusing time on reducing caseloads, it's how can we make these counselors specifically more effective? And in this study, Dr. Mulhern mentions, you know, focusing on training counselors because it's going to cost a lot less to train counselors to provide resources than it is to train teachers. So where schools are obviously way underfunded in this country, there is leeway to make counselors more effective rather than just trying to fill spots. Because mm -hmm. there is obviously a counselor shortage, and that's something that I'm going to get into with my next group of statistics. 
But what is most beneficial to students is making those counselors more effective at what they do instead of just getting placeholders. And so it's hard to say how to do that. And like Dr. Mulhern's statement that that's what needs to happen is assuming that there's a straightforward way to improve effectiveness, but that's not necessarily what she's getting at in this study. That's something for future research as she notes. But the one simple and inexpensive way to put these findings to works right now is to increase diversity in the counselor workforce, especially in schools serving large numbers of minority students. And so that's that's a huge part of the idea of making counselors more effective is getting more counselors who look like the students that they're serving, because mm-hmm. even that alone is, as the stats show, helping so much more to get students of color to get students who struggle academically to get students who come from poor backgrounds to be able to graduate to go to college so yeah that was just the first study that i had the second study that i found was a bit more numerical in the sense of access to counselors across the country so across high schools the average student to school counselor ratio is 311 students to one counselor Only one in five high school students is enrolled in a school where there is sufficient amount of school counselors. This means that there are 11 million high school students who are enrolled in a school without enough school counselors. Across high schools in the U.S., a school counselor who serves predominantly students of color has to serve 34 more students every year than a student counselor who serves fewer students of color and 27 states are shortchanging either students of color, students from low-income families, or both. Also, I want to mention that this study, this map, which I will link in the description, does not even include Alaska. So that's 49 states, and there's also on this, so essentially it's just two different graphs, but the second graph does not include another state So there were 48 states, but they also include D.C. as their own separate unit. So I guess it's um, I guess it's 50 states or 49 states in the second graph. I don't really know. But when it comes to the statewide high school student to school counselor ratio and access for students of color. So this graph was broken down into two separate graphs. One was for access for students of color. One was for access for low income students. And I I do want to recognize before we go in that there is obviously an intersection between these two and these statistics aren't necessarily complete or nuanced, but in the separation based on race and poverty level, um, these are what they found. So the way that they label these things, and again, this is so hard to describe, you should really check out the description, which is going to have the link for you to pull up these graphs so you can see it. But essentially, the way that this is broken down is a yes-no question. And so the first question is, is there equal access or better than equal access to these counselors between either white students and students of color or rich slash middle class students and poor students? And so if you answer yes, there is equal access then the question is, okay, are there enough counselors for all students? 
are there not enough counselors for all students? Similarly, if the question is, is there equal access and it's no, it's like, okay, so there's not equal access, but there are nearly enough counselors for all the students. They're just not being distributed equally or there's not enough, there's not enough counselors per students. So of the schools offering equal access or better than equal access to counselors for students of color, only four states offer enough counselors for students. Of these same schools that offer equal access to counselors for students of color as they do to white students, 21 states have too few counselors to serve students. Of the schools offering equal access or better than equal access to counselors for low-income students, eight states offer enough counselors for students. Of these same schools, 24 of those states have too few counselors. These numbers are not even counting the states that offer unequal access to counselors, of which there are 24 states for students of color and 18 for low-income students. So this is really confusing to talk about orally, but essentially these numbers are really bad. There are not enough counselors per student, period. Mm. Not even mentioning the disparity between race and poverty level or income level. And again, like I said, this study separates those two things and often especially in the U.S., those things are intertwined as poverty is a systemic issue that coincides with racism in the United States. So Mm -hmm. I do want to mention that those are two separate things in this study, but the point of this is that there is a huge disparity in access to counselors overall in the United States. So there's obviously an issue of non-white students being matched with white counselors and the way that they approach this and approach dealing with these students. And I actually stumbled across a TikTok that was a really good illustration of this. The at is Antoinette, the girl next door. I'm going to link this and the TikTok in the description. But essentially, I don't know if this creator is a guidance counselor, but I do know that they are a doctor and a therapist. So... The idea of the TikTok is that Dr. Antoinette illustrates the difference between quote unquote old school guidance counselors and millennial guidance counselors slash school counselor in the suburbs and school counselors in the hood, end quote. And so I'm just going to explain what happens in this TikTok a little bit, but you should definitely go watch it. But the first counselor is asking why the student has been missing school and the student expresses fear, saying, I always get in trouble. I don't want you to get my family in trouble. I don't want to talk about it. And the counselor's like, no, it's fine. I'm concerned about you. And then the student explains the situation and that the mom is working two jobs, the dad left, and the student is staying home to provide childcare. And when the counselor is asking more questions, like, where do you get food? Who cooks? And the student, the student is like, well, I cook, and sometimes there's not enough food, so I make sure that my siblings are fed first, and sometimes I just go without food. And then the counselor, who was like, no, please tell me, like, I want to help you, immediately says, well, sorry, but I have to report your family for child abuse and neglect, and calls CPS. So that's the instance of the old school guidance counselor slash school counselors in the suburbs, which in my opinion indicates a white person, does not necessarily indicate a white person, but the behavior illustrated in the skit for the first half was kind of white, which is why I'm bringing this up. So then there's the second counselor who is the millennial guidance counselor slash the guidance counselor in the hood. And so the same situation happens. 
The second counselor is like, hey, what's up? Where have you been? Immediately offers the student food, which is very different, and then approaches the topic of expressing the same concerns that the student is missing school, grades are slipping, but this counselor asks how she can support the student. The student tells the counselor the same thing that's going on, but the first thing that the counselor does is recognizes the work that the student's mom is doing and says like, what I love about your mom is that she's a really hard worker. And then Mm. says, how about I call your mom and offer her some resources to help your situation so that you can focus on studying and graduating on time. So it just directly illustrates the difference in good counselors slash the way that a guidance counselor needs to approach a variety of household situations involving race, poverty, things like that, that are intersecting and impacting the student's needs. And so that's kind of the idea of making guidance counselors more effective is like, how can we make these counselors actually support the student's needs? Because calling CPS and getting that student put in the system is not going to help that student graduate. That's not going to help anything. And offering resources instead, that's, you know, getting to the root of the problem. You're staying home because you have to do these tasks for your family. So let's make it so that you don't have to do these tasks for your family so that we can get you to graduate. That being said, to say that that's going to fix the problem, that's revolving on, you know, in this situation, the mom being willing to take that help the mom being able to take that help. You know, that's not necessarily the case. And so while these resources are really important and it's important that we can improve these resources because I do think that a lot of students have experiences with the first counselor where it's like, that's why you don't tell the counselor in the first place because they did the exact same thing that they said they wouldn't. They reported your family and now your family's broken apart. So Uh while, while I think it is very important, like Dr. Mulhern says, that we need to make counselors more effective and also provide more access to counselors, especially to students of color and low-income students, these resources are not going to fully eradicate the barriers that are stopping high schoolers from getting their foot in the door of higher education, nor are they going to change the culture shock that they may experience if and once they do get their foot in the door of higher education. And so the culture shock aspect is something I'm going to talk about more in the next episode. But something that I want to talk about in this episode is the school to prison pipeline, which is another thing that is a huge difference. Like counselors are not going to eradicate the issue of the school to prison pipeline. Right. And so just for a general definition of what the school to prison pipeline is, Mind you, this is coming from a resource that is a very good resource. It's an infographic that explains this idea a little bit better. And I am going to link that in the bio so that you can look at it directly. But essentially, the school to prison pipeline refers to practices and policies that disproportionately place students of color into the criminal justice system. The biased application of harsh disciplinary measures and overuse of referrals to law enforcement contribute to the problem, setting up vulnerable students for failure and ignoring the underlying causes. So, for example, the way that this plays out, I think that the best example for me to talk about is Chicago because I live in Chicago, but there are schools on the south side that have no textbooks because they think the students are going to steal them. There are no textbooks. They have they have no access to textbooks. There are no mm. stalls on the bathroom. Oh god. Things like yeah. this like they are so criminally underfunded that school is not really something good. Then you have the issue of gang violence and 
when you learn that school is not a safe place to be because of the way that you are experiencing school, what is keeping you from the safety of the streets? When school is not a safe place for you, but the streets that you grew up on are, then there's nothing motivating you to stay in school. Additionally, when it comes to this underfunding and the poverty that comes into the the criminalization of students, especially students of color, it's also like, what is going to keep you afloat? Going to school where you're just going to get sent to jail because there are police officers in every hallway or selling drugs on the side because that's going to keep a roof on your head and food on the table you know so there, there this is a very complicated issue that i can't fully encompass in this episode but i do want to recognize that school is not necessarily a safe place for all students so right. pretending like counselors are going to fix these systemic problems is like band-aid on a bullet hole yeah so i mean i think not to cut you off there but i think there is something to be said about the fact that a lot of the problems we have in well especially in school when it comes to discipline in general is far too focused on punishment i think is the main like it's punitive Every sort of disciplinary action in the United States is punitive. It's based on pu- it's based on punishment. It's based on well, you should feel bad about this, and you're never going to do this again. We're going to make you feel as shitty as possible about this, so you never do this again. Instead of focusing on well, like why did you do it in the first place? And there is no obviously we know there is no rehabilitation. Like obviously the prison system, the prison industrial complex is this entire insanely complicated episode that I don't want to touch because I don't know enough. I was going to say, there's so much to get into. So, so much. That's like a whole podcast. But like, I just, I think it's worth saying that school counselors, the school counselor sort of like knee-jerk reaction to report the parents is another, is just another symptom of the punitive reaction in every facet of American society. It's just, you know, the knee-jerk reaction is punishment, and in no way does that excuse that sort of that sort of behavior and that sort of reaction in counselors, but I think it makes sense why it happens, because if you're told your whole life, and in your training and in your school, you're told, well, you know, bad people do bad things, and in order to not do bad things anymore, they need to be told no, and they need to be punished until they feel bad about it. Then of course you're going to, you know, extend that to your sphere of influence over high schoolers, you know? So I guess it's just, it it makes a lot of sense. And it just sort of goes to show again that so much of the United States society and culture is so broken that I don't even know what to say about it, you know? It's just, it's just bad. (laughs) No, absolutely. I definitely would not excuse it and I know you're saying you're not trying to excuse it but I think I think for the sake of the argument it's just kind of like well what do you think is going to happen when you try to punish those parents if your goal is to keep students in school when you report that child and they get taken away and then now they're in the foster care system how is that going to help their chances of graduation and so like yes I agree like the the knee-jerk reaction is to do that and I think that's also definitely influenced when we talk about white counselors with students of color or poor students I think that is definitely because of taught racism 
mm-hmm. about these students and who their parents are and who their families are and how their households should be run and things like that. It's also just important that we recognize that this is not how it should be. And like, I agree. No, of course like, not. Like, yeah. Yes, our country is so broken. So no, I agree. But there's definitely a focus on punishment. And like you said, we don't we don't really want to get into the prison industrial complex, but it's a little bit hard to when the prison industrial complex influences every aspect of society, especially mm-hmm. school, when it comes to the school to prison pipeline. But yeah, so to look at the school to prison pipeline a little bit more closely, what this looks like is this. So 2.7 million K through 12 students received one or more out of school suspensions during the 2015 to 2016 school year. This is when the stats are from. Mind you, this is K through 12. So there are kindergartners getting out of school suspensions. That is insane. Why are you suspending a five-year-old? This number revealed a disproportionate impact on black or African-American students. While this demographic made up just 8% of both the male and female students, they represented 25% and 14% of their respected genders out of school suspensions. In comparison, white students received out-of-school suspensions at a rate lower than their enrollment. Well, 25% of the male student population and 24% of the female student population were white, they only represented 24% and 8% of -of out-of-school suspensions, respectively. So, though white students make up a much larger enrollment rate in these schools, black or African-American students are disproportionately making up a quarter of the out-of-school suspensions, even though they're only 8% of the population, because they are way more likely to be recommended for corporal punishment by schools. And so, like I mentioned before, the prospects of a lot of these students are not great because it's like you get into juvie at 15 And then it's on your record and then like forget about higher education, forget about college. And so while increasing resources like guidance counselors can certainly help if you're just going to go to prison anyway because you're being targeted by the police officers, literal police officers in your school. Armed. Yeah, armed police officers in your school, armed grown adult men most of the time in your school, white white men. What is the point of having a guidance counselor? You're never going to make it to college because Mm -hmm. you are being bred to go to prison. So I think the biggest thing here is just like, yes, it is very important, obviously, that we address how education can be better to get students who don't have access to higher education to the higher education, there are obviously much bigger systemic problems that this country needs to solve before we can even get to higher education. So I think the, the what I wanted to be the takeaway of this episode is there are lots of barriers getting students to higher education in the first place. Classism impacts so much more racism classism, all of these things against poor people, against people of color. These are things that impact students as early as kindergarten. Mm. So 
while we want to talk about higher education, it's important that we recognize that most students in these circumstances are not going to even have the chance to get there in the first place. That's just the way that this country is, and it is very unfortunate, and we need a lot of serious reform before we're going to attack the problem, because classism in higher education is a huge problem in and of itself, but we also have to address the root of the problem that creates it. And what is impacting this before higher education, even elementary education, we need to address the classism and racism that's going on there. So next week, we'll talk a little bit more about what it looks like when students from these backgrounds get to higher education and how they experience classism there and how the classism manifests. But for this episode, we just wanted to touch on, like I said, what happens before higher education and what what are the experiences of low-income students and students of color in this country. The prequel. Exactly. Sweetquel. So again, please stick around for next week's episode for our season finale. But yes, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Is there anything you wanted to say? Nah, mostly just uh, everything is intersectional, I guess. Absolutely. That part that part will come next week. I have a lot to say about that. But yeah, intersectionality is vital and everywhere and pay attention to it. Absolutely. Some some five year old is, is getting out of school suspension and that's not just because he's a little brat. And that's that should not be normal. So yeah, um, not a great note to end on, but that is our episode for today. So as always, everybody just wear your mask still. Lots of COVID going around. Take get, a drink of Wawata. Get yes, your monkeypox vaccine if you are oh, eligible. God, yeah. um, uh. Make sure that you have your polio vaccine because that's going around. Get your booster if it's been three months since you've been infected with COVID. Get your COVID booster. This this next one is kind of like a new shot, not really a booster. They they called it a specific word. I can't remember, but um, it's it's more like the first dose of the vaccine than it is a booster because it's addressing mm. whole new strains that we haven't been introduced to in the vaccines yet. But Yes, absolutely get your booster. They're coming out now. Um, Please get your booster so that we can stop sheltering in place always and disabled people can go back to living life in the way that everyone else has decided that they will be living life for the past three years. Stay safe, stay cool, and we'll see you next week with our season finale. Absolutely. Have a good week, everyone. All right. 